Section 4 of Irish Wit and Humor. The author is anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. John Philpot Curran. Part 2. Speaking of universal emancipation, he says, This paper, gentlemen, insists on the necessity of emancipating the Catholics of Ireland, and that is charged as part of the libel. If they had waited another year, if they had kept this prosecution pending for another year, how much would remain for a jury to decide upon? I should be at a loss to discover. It seems as if the progress of public information was eating away the ground of prosecution. Since its commencement, this part of the libel has unluckily received the sanction of the legislature. In that interval our Catholic brethren have reobtained that admission which, it seems, it was a libel to propose. In what way to account for this I am really at a loss. Have any alarms been occasioned by the emancipation of our Catholic brethren? Has the bigoted malignity of any individual been crushed, or has the stability of the government or that of the country been weakened, or is one million of subjects stronger than four millions? Do you think that the benefit they have received should be poisoned by the sting of vengeance? If you think so, you must say to them, you have demanded emancipation, and you have got it, but we abhor your persons, we are outraged at your success and we will stigmatize by a criminal prosecution the adviser of that relief which you have obtained from the voice of your country. I ask you, do you think, as honest men, anxious for the public tranquillity, conscious that there are wounds not yet completely cicatrized, that you ought to speak this language at this time to men who are very much disposed to think that in this very emancipation they have been saved from their own parliament by the humanity of their own sovereign? Or do you wish to prepare them for the revocation of these improvident concessions? Do you think it wise or humane at this moment to insult them by sticking up in a pillory the man who dared to stand forth as their advocate? I put it to your oaths. Do you think that a blessing of that kind, that a victory obtained by justice over bigotry and oppression, should have a stigma cast upon it by an ignominious sentence upon men bold enough and honest enough to propose that measure, to propose the redeeming of religion from the abuses of the church, the reclaiming of three millions of men from bondage, and giving liberty to all who had a right to demand it, giving, I say, in the so much censured words of this paper, giving universal emancipation. I speak in the spirit of the British law, which makes liberty commensurate with and inseparable from British soil, 
which proclaims even to the stranger and surgeoner the moment he sets his foot upon british earth that the ground on which he treads is holy and consecrated by the genius of universal emancipation no matter in what language his doom may have been pronounced no matter what complexion incompatible with freedom an indian or an african sun may have burnt on him no matter in what disastrous battle the helm of his liberty may been cloven down no matter with what solemnities he may have been devoted upon the altar of slavery the moment he touches the sacred soil of britain the altar and the god sink together in the dust his soul walks abroad in its own majesty his body swells beyond the measure of his chains which burst from around him and he stands redeemed regenerated and disenthralled by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation mr curran was here interrupted with the loud and irresistible acclamations of all within hearing when after a long interval the enthusiasm had in some degree subsided he thus modestly alluded to the incident gentlemen i am not such a fool as to ascribe any effusion of this sort to any merit of mine it is the mighty theme and not the inconsiderable advocate that can excite interest in the hearer what you hear is but the testimony which nature bears to her own character it is the effusion of her gratitude to that power which stamped that character upon her he concludes with this brilliant peroration upon the subject therefore credit me when i say i am still more anxious for you than i can possibly be for him not the jury of his own choice which the law of england allows but which ours refuses collected in that box by a person certainly no friend to mr rowan certainly not very deeply interested in giving him a very impartial jury feeling this as i am persuaded you do you cannot be surprised however you may be distressed at the mournful presage with which an anxious public is led to fear the worst from your possible determination but i will not for the justice and honour of our common country suffer my mind to be borne away by such melancholy anticipation i will not relinquish the confidence that this day will be the period of his sufferings and however mercilessly he has been hitherto pursued that your verdict will send him home to the arms of his family and the wishes of his country but if which heaven forbid it hath still been unfortunately determined that because he has not bent to power and authority because he would not bow down before the golden calf and worship it he is to be bound and cast into the furnace i do trust in god there is a redeeming spirit in the constitution which will be seen to walk with the sufferer through the flames and to preserve him unhurt by the conflagration after this brilliant speech when curran made his appearance outside the court he was surrounded by the populace who had assembled to chair him he begged of them to desist 
in a commanding tone but a gigantic chairman eyeing curran from top to toe cried out to his companion ar blood and turf pat don't mind the little darlin pitch him upon my shoulder he was accordingly carried to his carriage and drawn home by the people encounter with a fishwoman there was a fishwoman in cork who was more than a match for the whole fraternity of her order she could only be matched by mrs scutcheen of patrick street dublin the lady who used to boast of her bag of farthens and regale herself before each encounter with a penworth of the droppins of the cock curran was passing the quay at cork where this virago held forth when stopping to listen to her he was requested to go on out that hesitating to retreat as quick as the lady wished she opened a broadside upon curran who returned fire with such effect as to bring forth the applause of the surrounding sisterhood she was vanquished for the first time though she had been thirty years on the stones of the quay curran and lord erskine dr crowley in speaking of the two great forensic orators of the day draws a comparison between the circumstances under which both addressed their audiences when erskine pleaded he stood in the midst of a secure nation and pleaded like a priest of the temple of justice with his hand on the altar of the constitution and all england waiting to treasure every deluding oracle that came from his lips curran pleaded not in a time when the public system was only so far disturbed as to give additional interest to his eloquence but in a time when the system was threatened with instant dissolution when society seemed to be falling in fragments round him when the soil was already throwing up flames rebellion was in arms he pleaded not on the floor of a shrine but on a scaffold with no companions but the wretched and culpable beings who were to be flung from it hour by hour and no hearers but the crowd who rushed in desperate anxiety to that spot of hurried execution and then rushed away eager to shake off all remembrance of scenes which had torn every heart among them his duel with bully egan when curran and bully egan met on the ground the latter complained of the advantage his antagonist had over him and declared that he was as easily hit as a turf stack while as to firing at curran he might as well fire at a razor's edge whereupon curran waggishly proposed that his size should be chalked out upon egan's side and that every shot which hits outside that mark should go for nothing massey versus headfort the following extract is from his celebrated speech against the marquis of headfort never so clearly as in the present instance have i observed that safeguard of justice which providence has placed in the nature of man such is the imperious dominion with which truth and reason 
wave their sceptre over the human intellect that no solicitation however artful no talent however commanding can seduce it from its allegiance in proportion to the humility of our submission to its rule do we rise into some faint emulation of that ineffable and presiding divinity whose characteristic attribute it is to be coerced and bound by the inexorable laws of its own nature so as to be all-wise and all-just from necessity rather than election you have seen it in the learned advocate who has preceded me most peculiarly and strikingly illustrated you have seen even his great talents perhaps the first in any country languishing under a cause too weak to carry him and too heavy to be carried by him he was forced to dismiss his natural candour and sincerity and having no merits in his case to take refuge in the dignity of his own manner the resources of his own ingenuity from the overwhelming difficulties with which he was surrounded wretched client unhappy advocate what a combination do you form but such is the condition of guilt its commission mean and tremulous its defence artificial and insincere its prosecution candid and simple its condemnation dignified and austere such has been the defendant's guilt such his defence such shall be my address to you and such i trust your verdict the learned counsel has told me that this unfortunate woman is not to be estimated at forty thousand pounds fatal and unquestionable is the truth of this assertion alas gentlemen she is no longer worth anything faded fallen degraded and disgraced she is worth less than nothing but it is for the honour the hope the expectation the tenderness and the comforts that have been blasted by the defendant and have fled for ever that you are to remunerate the plaintiff by the punishment of the defendant it is not her present value which you are to weigh but it is her value at that time when she sat basking in a husband's love with the blessing of heaven on her head and its purity in her heart when she sat amongst her family and administered the morality of the parental board estimate that past value compare it with its present deplorable diminution and it may lead you to form some judgment of the severity of the injury and the extent of the compensation the learned counsel has told you you ought to be cautious because your verdict cannot be set aside for excess the assertion is just but has he treated you fairly by its application his cause would not allow him to be fair for why is the rule adopted in this single action because this being peculiarly an injury to the most susceptible of all human feelings it leaves the injury of the husband to be ascertained by the sensibility of the jury and does not presume to measure the justice of their determination by the cold and chilly exercise of its own discretion in any other action it is easy to calculate 
if a tradesman's arm is cut off you can measure the loss he has sustained but the wound of feeling and the agony of the heart cannot be judged by any standard with which i am acquainted and you are unfairly dealt with when you are called on to appreciate the present sufferings of the husband by the present guilt delinquency and degradation of his wife as well might you if called on to give compensation to a man for the murder of his dearest friend find the measure of his injury by weighing the ashes of the dead but it is not gentlemen of the jury by weighing the ashes of the dead that you would estimate the loss of the survivor the learned counsel has referred you to other cases and other countries for instances of moderate verdicts i can refer you to some authentic instances of just ones in the next county fifteen thousand pounds against a subaltern officer in travers and mccarthy five thousand pounds against a servant in tie against jones one thousand pounds against a man not worth a shilling what then ought to be the rule where rank and power and wealth and station have combined to render the example of his crime more dangerous to make his guilt more odious to make the injury to the plaintiff more grievous because more conspicuous i affect no levelling familiarity when i speak of persons in the higher ranks of society distinctions of orders are necessary and i always feel disposed to treat them with respect but when it is my duty to speak of the crimes by which they are degraded i am not so fastidious as to shrink from their contact when to touch them is essential to their dissection however therefore i should feel on any other occasion a disposition to speak of the noble defendant with the respect due his situation and perhaps to his qualities of which he may have many to redeem him from the odium of this transaction i cannot so indulge myself here i cannot betray my client to avoid the pain of doing my duty i cannot forget that in this action the condition the conduct and circumstances of the parties are justly and peculiarly the objects of your consideration who then are the parties the plaintiff young amiable of family and education of the generous disinterestedness of his heart you can form an opinion even from the evidence of the defendant that he declined an alliance which would have added to his fortune and consideration and which he rejected for an unportioned union with his present wife she too at that time young beautiful and accomplished and feeling her affection for her husband increase in proportion as she remembered the ardour of his love and the sincerity of his sacrifice look now to the defendant can you behold him without shame and indignation with what feelings can you regard a rank that he has so tarnished and a patent that he has so worst than cancelled high in the army high in the state the hereditary counsellor of the king of wealth incalculable and to this last i advert 
with an indignant and contemptuous satisfaction because as the only instrument of his guilt and shame it will be the means of his punishment and the source of his compensation the serenading lover in the very zenith of curran's professional career he was consulted in a case of extremely novel character which arose out of the following circumstances not many doors from eden quay in upper sackville street lived a young lady of very fascinating manners and whose beauty had attracted considerable attention wherever she made her appearance amongst the many gentlemen whose hearts she had touched and whose heads she had deranged was one young englishman a graduate of trinity college and about as fair a specimen of the reverse of beauty as ever took the chair at a dinner of the ugly fellows club strange to say he above all others was the person on whom she looked with any favour men of rank and fortune had sought her hand lords and commoners had sought the honour of an introduction but no none for her but the ugly man in vain did the ladies of her acquaintance quiz her about her taste in vain did her family remonstrate upon the folly of her conduct in refusing men of station for such an individual no go none for her but the ugly man her dear papa only seemed to take the affair in a quiet way not that he was indifferent about the matter but he loved her too much to throw any obstacle in the way of her happiness not so however with her brother a splendid young fellow whose mortification was intense especially as the whole affair was the theme of ridicule among his fellow-students in old trinity he though sharing in all the love and tenderness of the father could not understand his quiet resignation what is it to be thought of that one who was the butt of the university one on whom nature had played her fantastic tricks should be the person who held the key to his lovely sister's heart no the father might resign himself to this quiet philosophy but he at least would have none of it it should never be said within the college walls that he looked tamely on while a farce of this kind was being played out especially as some of his most intimate fellow-students and a beloved one in particular took more than a common interest in the matter on a summer morning in the middle of july he was coming out of his hall door when the postman handed him two letters one of which was directed to his sister suspecting the party from whom it came and that a knowledge of its contents might lead to some discovery useful to him in frustrating the writer's designs he opened it and found that his suspicion was correct and that himself was the object of complaint for his manner towards him in college and further that as he was about to leave for england on the following day and would not return for some weeks he would do himself the honour of serenading her at twelve o'clock that night after reading the letter his first thought 
was to look to the condition of his horsewhip but after a little quiet reflection he resolved upon another plan of action breakfast over he proceeded to the kitchen summoned all the servants to his presence to whom he related the whole story from beginning to end and proposed that they should drench him with water when he made his appearance under the window but there happened to be among them a corpulent lady called betty divine who entered a plea of objection to that mode of proceeding on the grounds of waste of water that in edinburgh where she had served for seven years they wouldn't think of such waste and that if the young master would only leave the matter in her hands she would drown the musician in a chorus the like of which was not to be heard outside the boundaries of bonnie scotland to this proposition on the part of betty the young gentleman gave a hearty assent adding at the same time a hope that her want of practice since she had left edinburgh would be no obstacle to her success to which miss divine replied by asking him to name the window out of which she was to present her compliments to the english minstrel as to that betty said he i leave you to select your own ground but take care that you don't misfire an observation which took the stable-boy bill mac by the greatest surprise as from betty's powers of administration in his regard a faded dark brown coat the master gave him had been restored to its original colour for once in her lifetime betty found herself mistress of her situation and having made her arrangements dispatched bill mac with an invitation to some of her stable friends of the quay to witness the forthcoming concert at twelve o'clock that night scarcely had the hour arrived however when the serenader made his appearance dressed in the pink of fashion and placing himself under his lady's window proceeded to play the guitar in the best style the performance hadn't well commenced when throwing his eye to her lattice high he beheld a female figure in the two-pair window which she opened gently then commenced his best effort in the art divine no doubt it was the lady of his love that was there about to reward him with nature's choice gifts from above not the wax artificials of these days but the real gems which he hoped to preserve on his passage to england that he saw a female figure was but too true it was miss betty divine who had been arranging that portion of her toilet which might endanger the free exercise of her right arm this done miss divine stood forward and grasping a certain utensil of more than ordinary proportions with one bound not only returned its lining on the night as tom moore says but also on the head of the devoted serenader who was so stunned by betty's favour that it was some time before he realised the nature of the gift his nasal organ having settled all doubt in that respect he made his way from the crowd vowing law and vengeance 
"'What is the matter?' asked a popular commoner on his way from the Parliament House to one of the boys of the quay. "'It's a cunstart, your honour, given by Betty de Scotch girl. "'The creature's fond of harmony, and for my part the tongue is stickin' to the roof of my mouth from de fair dint of decorous. "'I didn't taste a drop since mornin'. Aye, boys, ain't ye all dry?' this appeal having met with a favourable response the gentleman of the quay retired to drink his honour's health and to wash down the music meanwhile the next morning the serenading gentleman went in all haste to his brother-in-law one of the leading merchants of the city to whom he communicated the occurrence of the previous night he had scarcely finished when the merchant took him off to his attorney who without further delay went with them to the residence of curran to have his opinion on the case when they had finished curran at once gave his opinion gentlemen said he in this country when we go to see a friend or acquaintance all we ever expect is potluck Carew O'Dwyer was the first who had the honour of proposing that Curran's remains should be brought over from England and laid in Glasnevin. Charles Phillips' first introduction to Curran took place at the Priory, a country villa about four miles from Dublin. Curran would have no one to introduce him, but went and took him by the hand. Lundy Foot, the tobacconist, was on the table under examination, and hesitating to answer, Lundy, Lundy, said Curran, that's a poser, a devil of a pinch. Employment of Informers I speak not of the fate of those horrid wretches, who have been so often transferred from the table to the dock, and from the dock to the pillory. I speak of what your own eyes have seen, day after day, during the course of this commission from the box where you are now sitting the number of horrid miscreants who avowed upon their oaths that they had come from the seat of government from the castle where they had been worked upon by the fear of death and the hopes of compensation to give evidence against their fellows that the mild and wholesome counsels of this government are holden over these catacombs of living death where the wretch that is buried a man lies till his heart has time to fester and dissolve and is then dug up a witness is this fancy or is it fact have you not seen him after his resurrection from that tomb after having been dug out of the region of death and corruption make his appearance upon the table the living image of life and of death and the supreme arbiter of both have you not marked when he entered how the stormy wave of the multitude retired at his approach have you not marked how the human heart bowed to the supremacy of his power in the undissembled homage of a deferential horror how his glance like the lightning of heaven seemed to rive the body of the accused and mark it for the grave while his voice warned the devoted wretch 
of life and death, a death which no innocence can escape, no art elude, no force resist, no antidote preserve. There was an antidote, a juror's oath, but even that adamantine chain which bound the integrity of man to the throne of eternal justice is solved and molten in the breath that issues from the informer's mouth conscience swings from her mooring and the appalled and affrighted juror consults his own safety in the surrender of his victim informers are worshipped in the temple of justice even as the devil has been worshipped by pagans and savages even so in this wicked country is the informer an object of judicial idolatry even so is he soothed by the music of human groans even so is he placated and incensed by the fumes and by the blood of human sacrifices curran and the farmer a farmer attending a fair with a hundred pounds in his pocket took the precaution of depositing it in the hands of the landlord of the public-house at which he stopped next day he applied for the money but the host affected to know nothing of the business in this dilemma the farmer consulted curran have patience my friend said the counsel speak to the landlord civilly and tell him you are convinced you must have left your money with some other person take a friend with you and lodge with him another hundred and then come to me the dupe doubted the advice but moved by the authority or rhetoric of the learned counsel he at length followed it and now sir said he to curran i don't see as i am to be better off for this if i get my second hundred again but how is that to be done go and ask him for it when he is alone said the counsel ay sir but asking won't do i's afraid without my witness at any rate never mind take my advice said curran do as i bid you and return to me the farmer did so and came back with his hundred glad at any rate to find that safe again in his possession now sir i suppose i must be content but i don't see as i am much better off well then said the counsel now take your friend with you and ask the landlord for the hundred pounds your friend saw you leave with him it need not be added that the wily landlord found that he had been taken off his guard whilst the farmer returned exultingly to thank his counsel with both hundreds in his pocket curran and the judge soon after mr curran had been called to the bar on some statement of judge robinson's the young counsel observed that he had never met the law as laid down by his lordship in any book in his library that may be sir said the judge but i suspect that your library is very small mr curran replied i find it more instructive my lord to study good books than to compose bad ones my good books may be few but the title pages give me the writers names and my shelf is not disgraced by any such rank absurdities that their very authors 
are ashamed to own them sir said the judge you are forgetting the respect which you owe to the dignity of the judicial character dignity exclaimed mr curran my lord upon that point i shall cite you a case from a book of some authority with which you are perhaps not unacquainted he then briefly restated the story of strap in roderick random who having stripped off his coat to fight and trusted it to a bystander when the battle was over and he was well beaten he turned to resume it but the man had carried it off mr curran thus applied the tale so my lord when the person entrusted with the dignity of the judgment seat lays it aside for a moment to enter into a disgraceful personal contest it is in vain when he has been worsted in the encounter that he seeks to resume it it is in vain that he tries to shelter himself behind an authority which he has abandoned if you say another word i'll commit you replied the angry judge to which mr curran retorted if your lordship shall do so we shall both of us have the consolation of reflecting that i am not the worst thing your lordship has committed curran's quarrel with fitzgibbon curran distinguished himself not more as a barrister than as a member of parliament and in the latter character it was his misfortune to provoke the enmity of a man whose thirst for revenge was only to be satiated by the utter ruin of his adversary in the discussion of a bill of a penal nature curran inveighed in strong terms against the attorney-general fitzgibbon for sleeping on the bench when statutes of the most cruel kind were being enacted and ironically lamented that the slumber of guilt should so nearly resemble the repose of innocence a challenge from fitzgibbon was the consequence of this sally and the parties having met were to fire when they chose i never said curran when relating the circumstances of the duel i never saw any one whose determination seemed more malignant than fitzgibbon's after i had fired he took aim at me for at least half a minute and on its proving ineffectual i could not help exclaiming to him it was not your fault mr attorney you were deliberate enough the attorney-general declared his honour satisfied and here at least for the time the dispute appeared to terminate not here however terminated fitzgibbon's animosity soon afterwards he became lord chancellor and a peer of ireland by the title of lord clare and in the former capacity he found an opportunity by means of his judicial authority of ungenerously crashing the rising powers and fortunes of his late antagonist curran who was at this time a leader and one of the senior practitioners at the chancery bar soon felt all the force of his rival's vengeance the chancellor is said to have yielded a reluctant attention to every motion he made he frequently stopped him in the middle of a speech questioned his knowledge of law recommended to him more attention to facts in short succeeded not only in crippling all his professional efforts but actually in leaving him without a client 
Curran indeed appeared as usual in the three other courts, of the four courts at Dublin, but he had been already stripped of his most profitable practice, and as his expenses nearly kept pace with his gains, he was almost left a beggar, for all hopes of the wealth and honours of the long robe were now denied him. The memory of this persecution embittered the last moments of Curran's existence, and he could never even allude to it without evincing a just and excusable indignation. In a letter which he addressed to a friend twenty years after, he says, I made no compromise with power. I had the merit of provoking and despising the personal malice of every man in Ireland who was the known enemy of the country. Without the walls of the court of justice, my character was pursued with the most persevering slander, and within those walls, though I was too strong to be beaten down by any judicial malignity, I was not so with my clients, and my consequent losses in professional income have never been estimated at less, as you may have often heard, than thirty thousand pounds. High Authority Curran was once engaged in a legal argument. Behind him stood his colleague, a gentleman whose person was remarkably tall and slender, and who had originally intended to take holy orders. The judge, observing that the case under discussion involved a question of ecclesiastical law, then, said Curran, I can refer your lordship to a high authority behind me, who was intended for the church, though in my opinion he was fitter for the steeple. Use of Red Tape Curran, when master of the rolls, said to Mr. Grattan, You would be the greatest man of your age, Grattan, if you would buy a few yards of red tape and tie up your bills and papers. Curran and the Mastiff Curran used to relate with infinite humour an adventure between him and a mastiff when he was a boy. He had heard somebody say that any person throwing the skirts of his coat over his head, stooping low, holding out his arms, and creeping along backwards, might frighten the fiercest dog and put him to flight. He accordingly made the attempt on a miller's animal in the neighbourhood who would never let the boys rob the orchard, but found to his sorrow that he had a dog to deal with which did not care what end of a boy went foremost, so that he could get a good bite out of it. I pursued the instructions, said Curran, and as I had no eyes save those in front, fancied the mastiff was in full retreat. But I was confoundedly mistaken, for at the very moment I thought myself victorious, the animal attacked my rear, and having got a reasonably good mouthful out of it, was fully prepared to take another before I was rescued. Egad, I thought for a time, the beast had devoured my entire centre of gravity, and that I should never go on a steady perpendicular again. Upon my word, said Sir Jonah Barrington, to whom Curran related the story, the mastiff may have left you your centre, but he could not have left much gravity behind him among the bystanders. 
End of section 4. Recording by James Carson.